0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, March 18th, we're studying Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 31. What signs will accompany the destruction of the temple? If such a grand building like that can be destroyed, is there anything that lasts? And does all of Jesus' words today, does that have us something to teach us about the last day? These questions arise from the text we've got today. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us a regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippeck. Pastor Philippeck serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippeck, welcome back to Sharp Iron.
1: Thank you, Pastor Apple, and welcome to our listeners. Greetings in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to us who is and who is to come.
0: Pastor Philippeck, the text that we have today picks up right in the middle of a an extended discourse of Jesus. It encompasses all of chapter 13. We don't get the beginning today. We don't get the end today. We're right in the middle of it. Give us the context so that we can understand where we are as we prepare to look at the verses that we have today.
1: Sure. So in Mark chapter 13, this is the last time that Jesus is going to be in the temple before his death. And as he's coming out of the temple, a comment is made by one of his disciples. Look, teacher, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, if you're around or in Jerusalem at the time, around the Jerusalem temple, you would probably say the same thing, though this is not the first Solomonic temple. Even the second temple, though less glorious, is still quite glorious. If you were in Jerusalem and around the temple at that time, then you would see buildings of white marble and gold surrounding the temple. And interlaying in the temple and bronze entrance doors and all the gold and fine linens found therein, of course, within the temple. So the disciples comment then sparks this discourse that we get with Jesus about the end of things. When I say that very poignantly, the end of things, the end and destruction of the temple which is the beginning of the whole end of the last times, the latter times on up to the end of the age. So you have this kind of mixing and blending of the two, the end and destruction of the temple, which is kind of the beginning of the judgment of all things. And then the very end of the age when our Lord returns. And in the end, whether it be the end of the temple or whether it be the sounding of the trumpet and our Lord returning in all his glory to judge both the living and the dead. In the end, with all its bloodshed and destruction and death, there is really only one comfort or hope that you have in the midst of all of these tribulation and horrific events. And that is Jesus, the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory for the sake of his people, his elect. So in order to warn, in order to prepare, in order to ready all of the disciples into us for this. Jesus warns them about what's going to happen in the coming days and years ahead with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And then also at the end of the age when he comes again in glory. So he, this is a call to be on their guard, to stay awake, to not lose heart or lose hope. And so for us, then this, this section serves rather as a, as a call for Christians to be prepared and to stand firm in the midst of evil and suffering and sorrow and tribulation and duress. And it serves as a great comfort for us in the midst of this tribulation and duress with Jesus's words and his coming.
0: Concerning just that context and what you're saying about for what it does for us today, we talked a little bit about this yesterday with Jesus words here and how there's, maybe more than one place that they they're pointing to how and I think it it, that issue becomes even more poignant with the words that we've got today where where are we going to see in this text things that were very specific say to the apostles in their day and maybe not as much to us and and where are we going to see things that are going to apply maybe more directly to us How how do we how do we parse that out in this
1: text That's a good question, because I think that is a hard question to answer. For us, time is very, very linear in our day and age. We think of it as such. And so you get the destruction of the temple, you you know, 70 AD, before that, the crucifixion, before that, all of these events of Jesus walking out of the temple. And you go forward, and you've got all these different events that have happened in time up to the end of the age. But there is a well. there is a linear progression to history, there's, always, there's also an element of cyclical progression as well. So you'll see these things kind of morphing in one to another. One moment we're going to be talking about the temple in 14 through uh, you know, 23 today, and then we're going to switch sort of to the end of days. And then in 28 and uh, through, through 31, we're going to get this merging of the, the temple into the last day, and then we're going to be talking about the last day at the end of Uh, 32 and following. So you just really get this, this whole cyclicalness while it is also linear. And that's really because the temple at this time being the very presence of God is very central to time and history, right? This is what is said about Christ when he comes in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, right? This fullness of time. So the temple stands within this fullness of time as God's very presence among his people. And yet now in Jesus, You're going to see that switch from the temple to the the flesh of Jesus so that God no longer dwells behind a 45 foot curtain accessible by a priest once a year. No, God is now dwelling in the flesh of Jesus out in the open for all to see and for all to behold. So this is sort of the beginning of the end and it's all coming together throughout All of this section,
0: because of what a a drastic event this is that we're talking about, there are those elements that they are very much parallel to the end of the end of all things. As you said, the end of things is a very poignant statement, And, and really some of the things that you see Jesus describe today, you could really even look backwards from the moment where Jesus is and say, well, some of these things you see at other important events of. Of judgment in in history, and and then again looking forward as well, and so sort of like these words of Jesus, then it, you're going to see how they describe maybe more than one thing, and that's that's kind of on purpose because the end of all the end of things, I mean ultimately I think we'd say the end of things comes first at the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. That's the defining moment, and and the things that happen there sort of I don't know bleed outward from there if I can say it that way.
1: Absolutely. You're going to see some of that come into play in 24. You're going to see that come with the uh, the crucifixion and the uh, events with the tribulation and the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light and the stars falling from heaven and the powers being shaken. You're going to see the, the crucifixion and then it's ultimately going to go forward to the last day. So, yeah, the crucifixion is the beginning of the end, uh, meaning that right there we are in the last days. Mm. At any moment, Christ can return. And during the last days, one of the first events up that Jesus is going to warn them about, one of the first final judgments is the destruction of the temple. Mm. Like that's going to be shattering to Jerusalem.
0: That's right. So let's, let's go ahead and take a look at the text, what Jesus says here in Mark chapter 13. We're picking the text up in verse 14. Jesus says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's the text for today, Mark 13, verses 14 through 31. Pastor Philippek, the text begins with Jesus telling his disciples when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be that's the the first thing he mentions what is that <laughs> or who is that
1: Right, right. So maybe just a quick word of warning that there's a lot here. We're going to do our best to cover it all as briefly and succinctly as possible. (laughs) So with that in mind, notice how Mark uses the word he. It's very particular. The abomination of desolation is not a thing. It's a person. It's a he. And where is this place that he should not be standing, but actually is standing? Well, in the context of Mark 13, it is actually the temple. Now, before we kind of get into this a little bit, a word about what we had talked about with history being both linear and cyclical at the same time, a word of reminder for our listeners. Then remember oftentimes throughout the old and new Testament, when a prophecy is given, it has more one or more rather uh, immediate partial fulfillments, and then one great climactic final event. So you see some of the same events uh, occurring in similar ways and their partial fulfillments until the great climactic end. Uh, So that is to say, if I can, uh, there's many shadows or ripples of fulfillment of prophecy throughout time until the great and final ultimate and complete fulfillment of that prophecy. With this in mind, then, the abomination of desolation is no shocking statement to the Jews living in Jesus's day. It is a phrase that appears in the book of Daniel. And the understanding of many of the Jews in Jesus's day is that, event in Daniel first happened in the intertestamental period. Notice what I said. It first happened. So here's a first partial fulfillment during the intertestamental period. By that, I mean the, the time after the book of Malachi, but before the coming of Jesus, the abomination of desolation, the abomination of destruction, then tends to refer to the Greek king king named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, who about 168 BC invaded Jerusalem and captured the city. And upon his entry into Jerusalem, he marched right up into the Jewish temple, erected a statue of the Greek god Zeus and then sacrificed a pig, no less on the altar of incense. This in turn provokes a revolt in Judea as the Jews fought then to remove Antiochus Epiphanes' sacrilege from the sacred temple of God. So under the leadership then of the Maccabees, the Jews drove Antiochus and his army out and the Jews gained control of their land for about a hundred years until Pompeii. An acclaimed Roman general then captured the Holy Land and brought it under Roman rule, which is why it's under Roman rule in Jesus' day. So this is the first and partial fulfillment or ripple of the abomination of desolation that would be in the mind of many of the Jews, a very horrific and trying time, an evil time for them that they could easily understand in Antiochus' epiphanies. But notice this, Jesus is not saying this. Um, Now that the abomination of desolation has stood where he ought to be, he didn't say that. No, he said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, which means that Jesus is warning them of a future event that will be worse, than what they saw with Antiochus Epiphanes, since it will actually lead to, not just the desecration of the temple, but the destruction of the temple. Well, a little over 30 years after Jesus speaks these words, a Jewish group, um, the Zealots, who were anti-Roman, legalistic like the Pharisees, and held that there was only one leader of the Jewish people, and that was to be God. They rebelled against the Romans in about AD 66 and actually overtook Jerusalem. According to Jewish historian Josephus, then sometime after November AD 67, as the war broke out and progressed and intensified, well, the zealots, in order to flaunt their own power, appointed a high priest by casting lots instead of the traditional Levitical appointment that God had put in place. Well, with the zealots now occupying the temple and appointing an abomination as a high priest who even allowed criminals to enter the Holy of Holies uh, and, and kind of dwell there, those who had murdered and things like this, uh, that is what is going on at the time. So Pastor Apple, it is so bad. They even commit murders within inside the temple. And this inevitably led then to the destruction of the second temple by the Romans in AD 70. So the abomination of desolation then in, in this partial fulfillment or ripple, is Phani the appointed high priest. Um, the appointment of Phani will lead to the desolation of the temple uh, and the destruction of Jerusalem itself and of the temple. So notice how both of these instances then are, are partial fulfillments. Someone who is antithetical to God. This is a common thread. Someone who is antithetical to God and his work. Someone heretical is occupying the very building where God promised to be mercifully present in with and for his people. So it's no wonder then that Christians have continued to see this ex- and experience this partial fulfillment and ripples of this prophecy throughout the ages. I, what I mean is there are many church fathers who have ascribed this same passage of Mark, the abomination of desolation. Each time they face a heretical teaching and a heretical teaching occupies Christ Church. There were throughout the the first seven ecumenical councils, and later on, it's no surprise then that they say that when heresy has taken control of the churches, then a Christian's only place is to flee to the mountains of holy scripture. In the mountains of holy scripture, you will find peace, you will find safety, you will find salvation, because there you will find Jesus. What's not going on, but should be going on in the church, you will find there in holy scriptures. Well. This is the only place where a Christian can have refuge and safety and peace is the salvation in Christ as written down in Holy Scriptures. Well, later on throughout history, one of our own Lutheran church fathers, Martin Chemnitz, and the reformers actually quote this and apply this passage to the Reformation. Pope Leo X and his heretical doctrine of salvation by works is occupying the church and making it desolate. But when you flee to the mountains of holy scriptures, then the reformers fleeing from this salvation by works, found salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. So to sort of put all this long talk into one short, coherent thought in the first section, we're going to talk about the abomination of desolation. Jesus is going to, be focusing primarily on these wonderful stones that are going to be turned over these, this physical building of the temple and remind his disciples, remember how bad it was back with Antiochus Epiphanes. It's about to get even worse with the zealot Jewish war where the temple, these temple stones will not only be desecrated, but thrown down and not one will be left on another. And then this dear, dear disciples is one big partial fulfillment that will continue to, occur until the final fulfillment at the end of the age. So again, this first part of the text, Matthew 13, uh, 14 through 23, deals deals with that partial fulfillment or that rippling. And the last half, like I said, of the text mainly deals with, though there's quite a bit of overlap with the with the end of the age, the climactic fulfillment. So let me pause there after that long long uh, kind of history and what's going on and how we would see this give you a chance to respond to that. After
0: that. Well, there, there really is a lot there. So just to, to try to maybe first hear this as the disciples would have heard it, listening to Jesus, you know, 30, 33 AD, right around that time, as he's saying these words, when they hear the abomination of desolation, their minds are going to go back to Daniel. They're going to think of Antiochus Epiphanes and what happened then, so that as they think about what's going to happen then in the, say in the years that come in the book of Acts, they're looking for something or, or they're going to recognize that when these events start to take place in the temple, they're going to say, ah, Jesus has told us about this. And and then I, I think if my, if my history is right, that when the Christians did see these things happening in and around Jerusalem in the years leading up to 70 AD, they actually did flee the city, right? I mean, they did what Jesus said in terms of like getting out of
1: Jerusalem, right? Absolutely, and I think this is the point of of what is said in verse fourteen. In in parentheses in the English, let the reader understand. Like I think this is the whole point of that is is that you see that hey, this is the event, and you do see these these people, these you know Jews and, and Christians fleeing that. Um, these Jewish Christians fleeing to the mountains t- to be saved from this complete destruction of, of Jerusalem and the temple.
0: Hmm. So, and, and just, I was going to ask you about that parent, what's put in parentheses there, at least in the most, you know, let the reader understand. Well, one, you know, in the Lutheran study Bible, which is a red letter Bible. And mm-hmm. so the those words are in red. Are, are we to, like, did did jesus say those words or did and i know I, I don't know if you can actually answer this with certainty i suppose obviously the editors at the esv think so or or is that mark's parenthetical insertion what what do you think pastor philippic
1: yeah it's a hard question to answer because um in the greek it, it can because of the many manuscripts it appears um both ways but it, it, you know the majority is that these are jesus's words but there's a there's certainly a part of me that wants to say th- this is mark saying hey guys Get the hint. This is now, you know, and perhaps maybe those those letters might be better put in black, um, you know, as Mark's own like, hey, hint, hint. This is this is happening. So it, it, the the fact that it says reader means uh, certainly that this is that this is expecting to be read like this. This would be read out loud. So, you know, with Jesus saying this, this you would just expect to hear it orally and not have it read. So that kind of lends itself more to maybe this is just Mark's notation. Like, Hey guys, listen up to what Jesus is saying here. And now understand what's going on before us.
0: Right. And I mean, that's, and the only reason is, you know, imagine that Jesus de- does say those words. If he does say, you know, let the reader understand that that's quite something to hear those words actually from Jesus own lips. You know, he knows that this is going to be written down and read. Let the reader understand. And I mean, that's again, that there's, you know, we can't maybe say for certain it's, I, I think it's a little interesting to think about. So th- that's Jesus disciples. Now for us, you're, you're saying that as we think about these words for us today, and we consider, you know, watching out for an abomination of desolation, we should be Thinking about heretical teachings, uh, false teachings, as Jesus will warn later about false Christs, and He's already talked about that previously. Uh, for us, when we see that happening, it's not to uh, I don't get the get out of the church, but actually to return to the truth of the Holy Scripture. And and you brought up the Reformation. I, I think right. that's exactly what our, our Reformation fathers did when they saw false teaching; they returned to the Scriptures as their as their true source.
1: Absolutely. They didn't flee the church. They fled the scriptures to say, what does God's word, which is truth, because it is all about Jesus. What does this actually say? And therein you find the peace, you find the refuge, um, because the spirit works through the through the the word, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing um, the word of Christ. Hmm.
0: Now, Jesus, as he as he goes on from this, well, and we only got a couple of minutes here before the break. so Maybe we just get get started into this. He, sure. he talks about these days being cut short because they're gonna be so bad. And, and again, let let's try to see if we can and talk about this both in terms of what it meant for the disciples and and for us today. Again, we got about four minutes here before our break, Pastor Philip, to get started into that conversation.
1: Sure. So in the midst of all of this, we only talked about those, those first things in you know, verse 17. Um, in those days, this is a, f- a phrase that keeps reappearing. And 19 again, for in those days, there will be such tribulation it has not been this is very formulaic. I mean, each time there's a there's a huge turning point of judgment throughout the old Testament. This is the phrase that keeps reappearing. So this is going to be even more intense than what people have seen before this destruction. And it's going to cause people, like we've already said to flee to the Hills. And if the Lord had not, um, you know, this whole thing, you can read, you know, just the works of Josephus, uh, general Titus, things like this. If he had not, General Titus actually recognizes that that the end of this destruction was was by by the grace of God's own hand. Interestingly enough, so if God had not intervened, then then the people there would have just been wiped out, right? If God had not cut those days short, um, then th- there would no there would have been no opportunity. To hear uh the word of, of, of Christ. But the focus is not as much on judgment. Um, but notice, notice the hope uh coming up here. I mean, 24 is especially very full of not judgment, but but words of, of comfort. So that in 19 gives us this, this idea that when tribulation is occurring, um, that has not been so this great tribulation, God's actually going to do something. He's actually going to intervene for the sake of his. People, so that they will not lose heart and not lose hope, and this is exactly what Jesus is pointing to: that when evil surrounds us and presses in on and press down on us, we want to lose heart, we want to lose hope, our faith is shaken, but God intervenes for us in the person and work of Jesus.
0: Yeah, and we'll we'll talk more about that on the other side of the break. We'll go ahead and take that break right now. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at Mark chapter thirteen with Pastor Adam Philipek. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, March 18th. We are studying Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 31. We have Pastor Adam Philipek with us. He serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek. prior to the break, we were beginning to look towards verses 19, 20, where it talks about the Lord intervening. This will be a great tribulation, and yet the Lord intervenes on behalf of his people. And this is ultimately going to point us toward the way he works for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Keep, keep us in that conversation about how the Lord intervenes for the sake of his people during these times of tribulation.
1: Yeah. So we talked a little bit about how this worked beforehand about cutting days short and, and being able to have the gospel preached there, even in Jerusalem. But I think the same thing applies to us as we go through both linearly and cyclically through our time. Many times we face tribulation and evil and suffering in our day. And the minute you hit evil, that is one thing that has the potential to cause you to cry out to God and crying out to God. Is not an issue but crying out and losing heart and losing faith in the face of evil because it's just so overwhelming is and you'll notice this throughout earlier in the old testament when this is the destruction of the first temple uh when judah right southern kingdom has been in babylonian babylonian captivity for 70 years and isaiah's words ring in their ear you know Sing, shout for joy, O heavens, exalted earth, break forth the mountains into the singing the Lord has comforted his people. He has had compassion on his afflicted, those who are in tribulation. This is Isaiah 49. And, you know, after 70 years of suffering and God being silent, definitely silent and just seeming to allow this judgment upon sin to go on. The people of God say something to that amounts to. Yeah, right, buddy. What do I have to sing about? Don't you see what I'm going through? Don't you know my suffering? And their words are actually more poignant than what I made them. They say, the Lord has forgotten about me. My God has forsaken me. And Isaiah has to say, can a mother forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb?" Of course not. Ridiculous analogy, right? Your mom can't forget screaming hungry baby who needs to eat. The baby won't let it. <laughs> let her rather. And so Isaiah pushes the analogy even further. Even these may forget. I will never forget about you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. When the disciples see these things going on in Jerusalem, when we see suffering in our lives, we are tempted to cry out the same thing. Lord, where are you in this? Don't you love me? Have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? And it is at this moment where we flee to the mountains. We flee to the holy word of God and there find our suffering servant, a God who is not against us, but for us who actually does not desire our death, but our life, who intervenes for us by taking on flesh and becoming sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Bearing our sin upon the cross, he knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to bleed. He knows what it is to die. And yet all the while, like a lamb to the slaughter, he is silent until the proper time where he opens his mouth. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And when he bows his head and he commends the spirit to the father, then death is trampled down by death for the Lord of life has laid down his life and he has made the very instrument of death, an instrument of life, a life-giving tree for all who believe in him, so that all who look to him in faith, even in the midst of the su- in their suffering, may not lose heart, hope but have may have the certainty that god loves them that he forgives them that he is with them that he will see them through on into the resurrection on into the end of days the life everlasting with him in a kingdom that has no end so the only hope in the midst of evil and and tribulation is the god who intervenes for us so i always find it interesting that people ask you know the problem of evil if if you know evil exists you know all of these different things and god is good and you know and evil is around us then then you know, God can't exist. Well, you know, he quite easily understood why sin is, why evil is in the world. We brought it in, right? In the day that you eat of it, we will surely die. So, so why is all this stuff going on in the world? That doesn't really fascinate me, Pastor Apple, because yeah, we live in a world of sin and in a world of sin and death, these things happen to us um, in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. But yet the more interesting question is why doesn't God just put uh, us to death then and there in the garden? See, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and bears all things in his own flesh that we might live with him. So so this is the God that intervenes, the hope of the hope of the disciples, our hope, even in the face of evil today.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and that hope can only come from Christ crucified, Christ crucified and risen for us. As you as you were saying, that's the only hope that we have in the midst of this evil, and, and that is where the mercy of God is seen so fully that you know by all rights we deserved simply to be wiped out in the garden, and and yet God and His mercy already at that moment promised that the offspring would crush the serpent's head for us. And, and that mercy extends throughout time in these moments of tribulation. And and if Christ is the only hope that we have, then it is quite necessary that we know how to recognize him. And Jesus warns his disciples in verses 21 and following of those who would falsely claim to be him or falsely point to him. So what is Jesus saying about these false Christs, those who would, preach the false Christ, how do we recognize who he truly is?
1: Yeah. So during this time, uh, after Jesus speaks, there are many of false Christ. And you remember the signs and wonders you know, even done in the Exodus by the magicians, the sorcerers in the first three plagues there in Exodus. So there's signs and wonders that, that, that do happen. And yet, um, by those signs and wonders, people will try to, tr- try to draw you away from the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in drawing you away from him, not give you life, but rather death. So, there are many false prophets that do arise. I'll just give you a, a couple here. Um, one very poignant one in 44 and 45 AD. Uh, Theodos. He is a self-proclaimed prophet who persuaded many people to take their possessions and follow him over the Jordan River. And at his command, he split the river into two, providing an easy way through. But he did so with kind of this trickery. So so he really tricks many people into believing and following him. Well, in the book of Acts 13, verse 6, there's another one. Uh, Well, Paul's on Cyprus. He encounters a magician who is doing signs and wonders, and his name is Bar Jesus, Bar Jesus, son of Jesus, translated from the Greek. And there are many more prophets and self proclaimed prophets and pseudo prophets who seek to tell the world, I am the Messiah that you are waiting for. Here's my sign and here's my wonder. And in doing so, they lead many away from life and into death. There is only one Lord of life, there's only one Messiah, there's only one Savior. And he is the one who stands before the disciples. His name is Jesus Christ, son of God. And you might ask then, how do you, how do you actually know uh, who to trust? Well, I think that's the whole next section here. The coming of the son of man in, um, in his glory on the clouds. Like this is what Jesus is going to say. So don't be drawn away by these people. Here's what it is for the son of man to actually come. And that's, that's the next part of our text, 24 through, through 27.
0: So in that section, verses 24 through 27, Jesus speaks very vividly. He talks about the sun being darkened, the moon not giving light, stars falling from heaven, seeing the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, sending out his angels, gathering the elect— I mean there's there's pieces in there that that sound like and I think we've talked about this a little bit, but I, I want you to and dig in a little more it sounds like there's elements of the crucifixion, there's elements of the last day there's there's probably elements of the destruction of the temple what what is Jesus saying in these verses
1: yeah, so again there there's a there's a whole lot here, so with the coming of the uh, notice that in those days, in, in what days? Well, we've just been talking about the destruction of the temple, right? So so in that t- whole time period, leading up to that and around that and in that, um, in those days, after the tribulation. So now we're kind of talking about these this whole mix of, of everything together from Jesus's crucifixion to the destruction on into the end of the age. So this is where we kind of tra- make that transition. So you'll notice what's associated then. It's not, this section is not about judgment and destruction. Like these are the signs, right? The uh, abomination of desolation and all these things going on, but God's going to intervene. He's going to send his Christ. And in fact, this Christ, you will know him in this way. To the sun being darkened, the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from the heavens. The powers of the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Well, this is Following our same train of thought here about partial fulfillments and uh, throughout this time on into the full climactic fulfillment, the resurrection to eternal life. The first of this happens when Jesus hangs on the cross, right? There's darkness on the earth and there's the earthquake. And in the earthquake, you have the stars um, that are so embroidered, all the wonderful things on the temple curtain, all embroidered. they, They fall. It's ripped from top to bottom. The veil. Between God and man, the separation is ripped in two and the heavenly powers. Yeah, they they are shaken in that whole thing. And what you have then is the angels going out to gather this, this other section. I'm going to come back a little bit on this son of man um, coming in the clouds with great glory. So then during that whole time, you have Jesus suspended on the cross there between heaven and the earth in the clouds and, and there's no greater glory. Um, especially in, in Mark and John, then Jesus hanging on the cross. There at the cross in the gospel of Mark is Jesus found to be exactly who he is and known to be in his, all of his glory. The centurion is the only man who says it, and he's there at the cross and all the heavenly bodies being shaken, the sun and moon darkening, all these things. He says, truly, this man was the son of God. This man is God in all his glory. Um, he sees this and he confesses this. And then after this crucifixion and the resurrection, what do you have? Well, you have the sending out of, of his disciples. You have Pentecost, uh, All the uh, all the four winds, meaning the four corners of the earth. Mm-hmm. So at Pentecost, people are being gathered constantly into faith in Jesus Christ. So you have this first sort of partial fulfillment there at the cross of Jesus when his glory and when the end of the age begins, but then you can continue out through all of this into the day of resurrection. You saw Jesus ascend on the, in the clouds, but he promised to come again in the same way to take us to be with him that where he is there, we may be also. So in the face of this judgment, both in the temple and in the last day Here is your comfort and hope. God will intervene here at the cross. And then on the last day, he will come for you to gather you to wipe every tear from your eyes so that what began at the cross may be brought to completion. This is what we say in our liturgy. May he who has begun this good work in us bring it to completion. When in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, at the end of the days when he returns again, he's going to fulfill this, he's going to wipe every tear from our eye, everything that, that plagues us, all the evil, everything that surrounds us, our own sin, even death, he will wipe from our, there will be no mourning, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain, the old order of things will have passed away, even death and the new will have come. And then, resurrected with glorified bodies like Christ, who is the firstfruits, we will look at our greatest enemy death, and the words of Paul will be, uh, that he spoke in Corinthians, will be fulfilled. No oh, death, where is your victory? Oh grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives me the victory in my Lord Jesus Christ. So notice the hope in the midst of tribulation, both at the start of it, in the temple, and on the last day, is that God is going to intervene for his saints so that not one person, not one single person is lost, but that all who call on him have eternal life and God raises them up on the last day.
0: Mm. You know, that that image of the hope that we have in the midst of all this tribulation of God intervening for his people is such a, a wonderful thing for us as Christians that I mean, I think really stands in contrast to the world around us that, you know, maybe the, the mentality, oh, no, the sky is falling. Is that Chicken Little who says that? Yeah. You know, yeah. That's, that's not the Christian attitude. And I, I think this is in, in Luke's account of this discourse from Jesus. But Jesus, you know, he says, when you see these things start to happen, lift up your heads because you know your redemption is drawing near, which is the exact opposite of the way the world would react. When, when we see these things, we're reminded As Jesus said in verse 23, you know, I've told you all things beforehand. We know that even in the midst of this tribulation, he is intervening for us in his son, Jesus Christ, which will come to its full fulfillment on the day of the resurrection of all flesh. It's just a, it's such a wonderful hope that we have in the midst of this world full of trouble.
1: Absolutely. And I think what you said about lift up your heads, that your redemption is drawing near in Luke is exactly what's going on with the fig tree. It is.
0: So, so how is that? What is, I mean, Jesus has talked about a fig tree previously during Holy Week. Back in Mark 11, he used a fig tree as a, an example. That doesn't seem to be what he's doing here. He's, he, he is using a fig tree, but he's not using it in the same way, it seems. How is Jesus making use of the fig tree in verses 28 and 29? What's, what's the image he's giving?
1: Okay, so during this time, coming from Bethany back in chapter 11, he sees the fig tree and it withers. And about that fig tree, then we move into this whole narrative of the temple. So the fig tree there serves as, and the cursing of the fig tree serves as to say in Mark 11, hey, what should be happening with the preaching of God's word in the temple What should be happening with the Pharisees and the chief priests, that is, they should be clinging to Jesus and seeing him as the new Messiah. They should be bearing the fruit of repentance and faith. They're not doing. So what's going to happen? Well, he, he curses the fig tree. And this is within the whole context of the temple narrative. And that curse serves as a judgment. Well, here from the fig tree. Well, the fig tree is kind of a double entendre here. So we get this reminiscent of, oh, the judgment of the judgment of Jeru- of the J- Jerusalem temple um, is, is kind of looming from Mark chapter 11. But from the fig tree, then learn this lesson, its lesson. As soon as it puts out branches, um, it becomes tender, right? We, we have said these things. So the statement then, this Jesus' statement can seem a bit odd, because when you see the great duress and, and tribulation, you think, oh, no, everything is crumbling and it's falling apart. You think that when the temple in 70 AD, you're going to think that, throughout all of time until that great and glorious day when the end comes. But notice how Jesus, his words are not about everything falling apart and chicken little, the sky falling, but they're actually about words of spring and summer. So this, what is to be learned from the fig tree is, the fig tree is that when you see the cursing, when you see the judgment coming on, don't think, Oh no, everything is falling apart and I'm going to cease to exist and everything around me is going to pass away. no, you know what happens? You know what you can do? You can focus on this. That that the very moment, at this very moment, the old drab order of things is passing away. Sin, suffering, evil, and death. This stuff is coming to an end. The day is nearly at hand, and the new is now bursting forth. So it might look to you. Scary, dear saints of the living God, but it is actually a breaking down of the old prison and a setting free of the prisoners into the new and everlasting kingdom of God. It is the end of the evening and the dawning of the new day that has no end in the kingdom of God.
0: And perhaps there's there's no more poignant place that that happens for the Christian in this life than at the deathbed of a Christian. I mean, when, when there is that that hope in the midst of grief. And Paul talks that way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that we do grieve, but we grieve as those who have hope, not like those who have no hope. And that, that even on on the on the deathbed of a christian at the funeral of a christian we still sing for joy i mean we we sing songs of of resurrection even in a moment of great sadness because we know that our lord has intervened even at that most terrible of moments of the death of a loved one our lord has has there intervened taken our loved ones to himself and and will make everything right at the resurrection on the last day i mean this this hope of the fig tree <laughs> pervades the life of, of the Christian from, from beginning to the end.
1: Absolutely. And when Christians say hope, we don't mean it as the world was, as the world does. I hope it's not going to rain or snow today. Meaning I don't know if it will. I just don't want it to. So I, I hope no for hope for a Christian means it is our certainty. It is our comfort. The Lord has spoken and he will do it. Hence we sing the hymn. My hope is built on nothing less. Well, what's built on le- uh, nothing less? Your, your your wish that this would come true? No, your certainty, your confidence is built on nothing less than Jesus's blood and righteousness.
0: Hmm. Now, Pastor Philippic, as Jesus continues, he says in verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is... One of those verses that can be difficult to understand, what does he mean by this generation passing away and and then all these things taking place? What is, what is Jesus saying in verse 30?
1: Yeah, so, okay, the Greek term here is um, genea, and genea, it can mean a couple of things. It can mean um, what we would think of most literally, uh, those who are born currently and living in the time period. So you can think of the, those living in the destruction of the temple period, but it can also refer to throughout the gospel of Mark. Actually, it tends to more. So throughout the gospel of Mark, um, refer to not simply the temple of 70 AD, but, but the more richer use of that word, genea, which is um, meaning from a, a generation a generated from sort of two different people. Those coming from or generated from the flesh of the first Adam Uh, That's how Mark typically kind of uses this. He uses them both ways, but emphasis on, on the second way. So that those generated by the flesh of the first Adam, so sinners and unbelievers who deserve death and those then in contrast who are generated from the the flesh of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the redeemed, the forgiven believers in Christ. In essence, then the key to understanding is keep that one in mind because what's being said then here, if you understand it is you're going to have tribulation and the distress beginning 80, 70, and even before, but, but that's going to be one huge event for you. So yeah, this generation, but, but more than that, you're going to have tribulation and distress beginning with the destruction of uh, of the temple, but it's going to continue all the way to the end until the son of man actually returns. And in the face of these people will be tempted to lose heart. They will be tempted to fall away, but what is going to keep them firm? And here's the, here's the thing. He, he says what's going to keep them firm. My words will not pass away. I, I, that is so fascinating because the one thing that is fragile and changes and is immediately perishable are words. Yeah, I, I say them and they can fade away and I may or may not remember them. But heavens and earth, man, those are tangible, solid things. But God says, no, all of these will pass away. And then he uses what would be referenced in Isaiah 10, Isaiah 65, elsewhere in Isaiah is that that the very thing that will last forever is the word of the Lord. And Jesus says, you know, the word of the Lord endures forever. Uh, No, those words are actually my word. So he actually claims this divine identity. God's the word of the Lord. That's my word. My word won't pass away. So the way that people will be preserved and they will be preserved, even in the face of suffering, God will always preserve for himself a remnant of people who fear, love and trust in him, even in the midst of destruction, desolation. And they will be preserved by fleeing to the mountains of scripture, by going to his word, by hearing, by reading it, by inwardly digesting it, because therein is found our comfort, our hope, our strength, who is Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning for the forgiveness of sins and for the life of the world. What a great comfort for us then, even in the face of our own tribulations, to know that even in the dark and latter days of our own lives, God will continue to preserve his people. His one holy church and not even the gates of hell shall prevail against him. So if they can't prevail against him, then they cannot prevail against his church either. And by the power of this word, even through the cutting of the day short, God will continue to intervene for those who cling to Christ in faith. And not one single person will be lost. But everyone who calls upon him will be saved.
0: Uh, verse 31, I really think cuts to the heart of a lot of the things that Jesus has been saying. And, and now thinking back all the way into the text we looked at yesterday, the first part of Ma- Mark 13, you know, the, the disciples had been marveling at just these beautiful stones, this wonderful temple that was in front of them, how permanent a building like that must be. Jesus shocks them by saying, look at them. There's not going to be one stone there that won't be thrown off of another. I mean, he just, he he tells them that this building, which in their minds must've been the most permanent building they could think of would one day be destroyed. And and now he's, you know, he's, he's been building this throughout his discourse and he gets now in verse 31 that even heaven and earth will pass away. I mean, you know, okay, Jesus, you're telling me that this wonderful building is going to be thrown down? Well, at least I still have the rest of creation. <laughs> Jesus right. says, no, even heaven and earth will pass away. What's the one thing that's permanent? What's the one thing that you can bank on that will sustain you in the midst of this world with all of its changes and chances, with all of its sins and troubles? It is the words of Jesus that will never pass away. And I mean, I really think that that ties back together with the whole thing with the temple being destroyed in the first place. This building's not needed anymore because you've got Jesus. You've got him in the flesh that has been crucified and raised. And now before you and me, we have his own flesh and blood to eat and to drink because we have his words. I mean, and that is what sustains us in the midst of this world that is passing away all these things that seem so permanent. I mean, we're, we're just about at a year. I guess we're just over a year now with this pandemic. And and how many things have we learned over the last year that we thought were permanent, they're not. And and even those things, heaven and earth themselves, that, that seem the most permanent to us, that's not the hope. The hope is Christ and his word, which will not pass away. Pastor Philip, Beck, with about three minutes, help us wrap things up. Give us the good news from this text in Mark
1: 13. Oh, you have given such a beautiful summary. (laughs) I don't know if I can do better, but I will simply maybe focus on one word in all of this. Amen. Now, that word for many means I agree, right? Amen. Yeah, I agree. But that word is not used to simply say I agree because you can agree with something that's false. I could tell you the world is flat and you could say amen. But that doesn't make it true. That just means you agree. Amen is so much richer. It's so much deeper than that, which is why throughout um, all of Advent, throughout even all the time, it's amen, come Lord Jesus. That's how Revelation ends, right? That's where my mind's going. Amen, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. So this amen word just means something equivalent to this. Uh, Luther says, yes, yes, it shall be so. But perhaps I'll, I'll go more toward the words of Isaiah. You have spoken and you will do it. Your word endures forever and ever. And so if you say you will do this, you will do this. You are the resurrection and the life. We will live even though we die, amen. This is my body and blood, amen. All of these words that you have spoken, they are trustworthy, they are true. Everything else can pass away, but there's one certainty and one confidence that we have. And that is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was dead, but is alive again, living and reigning for us. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, that trumpet will sound and he will come and that in judgment, before the judgment seat of Christ, we shall bask because our verdict as Christians is not guilty. I have suffered, I have bled, come with me and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. And we will live with the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Tears wiped away, no suffering, no sin, no death. What else can be said, Pastor Apple, but amen. Come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.
0: Amen. Pastor Adam Filipek is the pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 13 verses 14 through 31. Pastor Filipek, thanks for being our guest
1: today. Thank you, Pastor Apple, and blessings to you.
0: I'm your host here on Sharp Iron Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 13 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.